Welcome to the Polyculture Podcast. A show where we discuss all kinds of culture, from permaculture to pop culture. I'm Lena Greenberg. I use they, them pronouns. I'm Gabriel Coleman. I also use they, them pronouns. This episode, we are going to be talking about queer Queer cultures. cultures. We are going to dig into what it means to study queer ecology and what it means to be queer in the outdoors. Soon, we're going to chat with Lee Brown, a researcher and systems person based in London, but originally from California with a background of living in former marshland and thinking about how ecosystems fit together or don't. And then later, we will talk with Alice Riordan and Jonathan Williams, who are creators of Queer Out Here, which is an audio zine for queer people to experience the outdoors, record it, and make things and experience them together. But first... What exactly is queer ecology? I don't know, Gabriel. You're the one in grad school. You want to start us off? First, I want to say that in in prep for this, we read a couple of texts by Catriona Sandylands, Bruce Erickson, and Caitlin Doak. Sorry if I mispronounced any of your names. We enjoyed your texts, and we'll link them in the audio description if you want to find out more. Generally, what all three of these pieces were saying is that there's like these three different ways to think of queer ecology. The first one being queer behaviors in biological reproduction. I think queer behaviors in biological reproduction is what straight people think of when they think of queer humans. And that's often the beginning and end of discourse about queerness outside of conversations that happen amongst queer people. And I think often gayness and queerness is seen primarily in the context of sex and reproduction, and it's not as often transposed onto culture or ecology outside of queer communities. So I think a part of what we're trying to get at today is what happens when you take this idea of queerness and bring it beyond the framework in which we usually hear about it, in which a person identifies as queer or a person identifies themselves, the people they're attracted to that makes them queer. But there's so much more to queerness than that, of course. Yeah, like this biological reproduction focus is very like gay penguins and stuff like that. And it's very important and cool. Isabella Rossellini's... The videos where she pretends to be animals reproducing. Yes, green porno. Yes, green porno. If I were a bee, a queen bee, I would be very fat and do nothing else but lay eggs. Isabella Rossellini's green porno is very like this first way of looking at queer ecology. Looking at how different organisms reproduce and saying, wow, this is so much more varied than man meets woman, penis in vagina, that kind of stuff. So it is important, but yes, there's a whole lot that's deeper than that. And I think there's also been a tendency to use queerness in sexual reproduction of non-human animals as a way to justify the quote-unquote realness of human queerness, which I think is inside out or backwards. I think queerness is a lot of things, and among them is holding complexity, being uncategorizable, and existing in this process of being made and unmade, which is just a lot less linear or simple than heterosexuality or than single species relationships, or there's just so much more than the way in which we have normalized identity and relationship in this capitalist, racist, heteropatriarchal world. And I think that queer ecology seeks to peel back the curtain and say, actually, there's not a super clear boundary between any of the things that we use to categorize nature and culture and human and natural and straight and different and all the boxes we use to build the world that we think we know. And also, queerness is so much more than sex. As a queer person who has sex but is not all about sex, like there's so much more to me that is queer than who I have sex with and how I have sex. And so to narrow it to this biological reproduction thing is a little reductive. But luckily, there are a lot of other ways that queer ecology manifests. The other, the second one that comes up is queerness in relation to environments. So like how homosexuality, heterosexuality, queer gender identity, relate to constructions of space. The intro to the book Queer Ecology, that's called A Genealogy of Queer Ecologies by Catriona Mortimer Sandylands and Bruce Erickson. They open with this narrative about Brokeback Mountain, the movie, by Ang Lee, and how 
it's about these men going into nature to discover their homosexuality and like being able to escape from the domestic ideas of heterosexual coupling that exist in urban spaces and in the home. And so this is another question of queer ecology is like ideas of natural spaces, how are they influenced by heterosexuality and ideas of I don't know, normative sexualities. I think also ideas of like dominance and submission, which Mm -hmm. feel obviously very connected to the sort of predator prey model of looking at ecology and that most things, most components of a given ecosystem hold many roles. Mm -hmm. And that is very queer in and of itself. The other example of this queerness in space at least human queerness in space, is like cruising. That's what a lot of folks talk about. And Jose Esteban Munoz in his book, Cruising Utopia, and in a lot of his work has discussed cruising as a way of claiming and remaking space outside of these heteronormative constructions. Cruising being the practice among queer people of going out into parks, often urban green spaces, to solicit sex. And I think that interacts in a lot of ways with both constructions of what is nature and is it nature if it's an urban park and also interacts with this experience which we'll talk a bit more about later of urban spaces seeming queer because those are spaces in which a lot of queer people have been able to be more safely out and queer than in Mm -hmm. rural spaces or supposed natural spaces. But then there's also the inherent queerness of ecology and the natural world. And I think it's, as with queerness, it is neither here nor there. Mm -hmm. And cruising is, I think, a little window into the complexity of how queerness interacts in space across urbanness and ruralness and builtness and naturalness. And that's the third uh, way of understanding queer ecology, what you've been alluding to, I think, looking at queerness and the understandings of ecology as like metaphors for each other. How does queerness reflect the natural world? And how does the natural world reflect the queer experience? Yes, that brings us very nicely to our conversation with Lee Brown, who has been studying peat and which they argue and which I think we both agree is perhaps one of the queerest parts of ecology. So, Lee. Hello, yes, I'm Lee Brown. I use they, them pronouns. And I have spent the past year and a half getting really into peatlands and how queer they are and their kind of histories of providing refuge to people and species, more than human species, that are excluded from other spaces or well adapted to the kind of conditions that peatlands offer. My work has delved into chronicles of exploration and surveying that recount the drawing of lines and borders and the uh, defining of bodies of water as opposed to landed areas and the designation of certain wetland areas as wastelands needing to be drained in order to have value. Lee, do you want to talk a little bit about Pete? Maybe read something that you've been writing for your dissertation? I do a lot. I wrote Islands of Pete called batteries, are dislodged from the swamp, rise, and float in the Okefenokee, believed to mean land of trembling earth to the creek people. When tree roots anchor it again, it is called a house situated in a continuum of wetness, which I just love. The Okefenokee is a huge ecological kaleidoscope and about the batteries that sink and rise again. There's this continual shifting in swampy wetlands that is very like hybrid and liminal by nature and i think that is not irrelevant to the kind of home it has been throughout history to fugitivity i feel like the traditional way of thinking ecologically about this is to think okay this is a peat bog a swamp and these batteries will rise and form houses and then 
enough of them will form and then it will turn into a prairie and all the water will go away and then there will be trees and then it will be a forest and then it is done changing Mm -hmm. and it is in its peak um, state but as you implied there there's no like linear narrative like that i have been raised and schooled to think of sustainability and restoration and remediation and conservation as linear processes Mm. and this exploration has poked holes in that rhetoric and notions of linear progression particularly because as people have noted who are looking at the great dismal swamp at the border of what we would refer to as virginia and north carolina severe subterranean fires have carved into the land creating depressions changing the topography and the hydrology leading to more marsh-like conditions some thousands of years ago it was more marshy so its return to this marsh state is a kind of echo of its more distant past still holocene past i think but not what it has looked like in the last 500 years which i think is the time scale that many restoration and remediation projects are concerned with because that's the period of time in which white people and settlers have extracted and degraded environments to such a high degree and so i'm just and i think other researchers doing restoration work are also confounded by what to use as a baseline in these environments. And there's a kind of longer term shifting, especially with anthropogenic impacts, that raises questions for me that I'm not intending to answer, but rather to sit with and encourage others to sit with about what we do with the damage, especially when there are species that are thrilled by the marsh conditions. And I think we recognize the installation of a seawall or the draining of a swampland or the landfilling of that kind of interstitial zone, which then provides a surface and a boundary to use when dividing up that piece of land to sell and build on. Yes, just how that the Homestead Act, the creation of territories on indigenous land, and the further parceling up into blocks and then lots for sale. I also wanted to point out that commodities don't transform. That transformation is a kind of queering. The fact that things can and do change and that in changing they ruin the systems that they're built on. And the word transform is queer in itself, as is the transformation of identities and bodies. It literally means a cross shape. Transness and trans people and transformation are all about changing a form that maybe was once thought to be solid or in place. I think there's a direct line between the transness and transformational experience of being a not cis person as well as transformation of place and space and ecosystem as shifting from one thing that it might have been thought to be to being something else. There's a swampy ecosystem that's from what I understand, one of a kind, just outside of Mexico City called Xochimilco. It's an amazing freshwater swamp that early arrivals to the area had shifted by scooping up the sludge at the bottom of the swamp and anchoring it in place by planting trees and creating probably house-like structures like the swamp houses you just mentioned, Lee. And it was one of the most ecologically rich areas and one of the most fertile farmlands because it was the sludge that made up the soil in these anchored islands. So Chimilco, I think, also is one of the only only homes to axolotls, which are one of those species that love ecosystems like this and are neither adult nor child. They exist in this between state. So they don't fit into categories. So around the world, each bog, each swamp, each uncategorizable ecosystem has its fugitives which too cannot be categorized. Lee, can you talk a little bit more about fugitivity in swamps, both human 
fugitivity and non-human. I'm thinking about how peat itself and the histories of peat forming swampy wetlands express a kind of submergence in the sense of organic matter building up, not fully decomposing because of anoxic conditions. And also in the sense that swamps, and I'm looking particularly at the southeastern U.S. from the 17th century up to the 20th, were places to inhabit and hide away and pass through in the face of chattel slavery and removals of indigenous people all of the chaos of colonization and in terms of the histories William Bartram traveled through the swamps of the southeast and wrote that colonial armies and cartographers alike found themselves lost sunk and sick there were people who could inhabit them navigate them and inhabit them I'm looking at the stories of marinage the maroon communities that formed after people fled plantations, particularly in the Great Dismal Swamp. But this author, Golden, writes that marinage is a unique form of opposing slavery, not simply because maroons commanded space in ways that refused the system altogether, but because they created viable alternatives to the system in wilderness spaces, which were simultaneously black refuge and white refuse. I'm really interested in the history of maroons, of black and indigenous people, being able to escape into these spaces that were both undesirable by white settlers and inaccessible to them. Mm -hmm. um, like the army just couldn't get there. They were too afraid. Yeah. It makes me think of queer space. I like that in these cases of human refugees, it's this space that is accommodating to those who are in need of refuge and resistant to oppressors. I knew first about the maroon communities in the Great Dismal Swamp, and then I realized that indigenous folks also made use of the swamp for a similar reason. So there's this swamp in one of the Carolinas, the Four Holes Swamp, and I found that as another Blackwater Swamp, once that was once a sanctuary for the Natchez, and a number of Tuscarora people did not leave for New York upon removal but remained in the alligator river swamp in north carolina after removal further south in georgia the creeks met at the swamps of south georgia where they maintained community and informal government muskogee creek means dwellers in the swamp into at least the 1800s if not the 1900s there were still settlements by seminoles in the okafinokee swamp so there's like a many centuries long history of inhabitation of the swamps as places of refuge at the cusp of colonization into the 20th century. In the next state over, the Seminole took refuge in what we now call the Everglades during the Seminole Wars and were able to find a way to stay there despite the regime of removal. It makes me wonder about tribes whose land spans borders. There's a false division between or amidst a place that is just one place that is supposed to be a refuge or reserved. And then thinking about non-human species, the migratory jaguar corridor from Central America to South America that is hindered by borders that are fortified you know, with walls and poachers. And there are all these kind of material obstacles to migration patterns that are much older than those borders and that there is a means of creating refuge for those non-human species that requires the dismantling of borders and acknowledges that refuge is also refuge from the violence of falsely dividing an ecosystem into segments that have nothing to do with geography. You can understand the resilience of a peatland or health of the peatland at scales other than the landscape scale. So at the very small scale of a single sphagnum moss, if a moss is under stress, it will bleach, becomes white, reflects light. It can come back, but only if like the conditions are right. Then you have uh, communities, of, like a few sphagnums clumped together. They might also have their own mechanisms of resilience by turning into clumps that are tightly packed or loosely packed. And then you have 
units of landscape and that whole system may expand or contract over time so there are all these interacting scales and of course we know that's how ecosystems work Mm -hmm. there are lots of scales of activity and lots of things you can look at to understand its function and health and interrelations and so on but i just love that in a peatland there's so much there's so much of a spectrum in how the organisms and the the peatland as a whole expresses itself mm-hmm. and regulates itself and so on. Mm-hmm. It's truly so queer. <laughs> this was fun. Thanks for joining us, Lee. Thanks so much for having me. Next up, we're going to chat with Jonathan and Alice of Queer Out Here. Queer Out Here is an audio zine. It's a sound collection of experiences of being queer outside and queering the outside. Gabriel introduced me to Queer Out Here a while back. We submitted a piece to them that we made together while biking in the New York City marathon route before the runners got started. And so we're very excited to chat with Jonathan and Alice about what it means to be queer out here. I'm Alice, I use she, her pronouns, and I'm originally from France, but moved to the UK about 10 years ago and rediscovered the outdoors there and do a lot of cycling and walking and wild camping kind of thing and co-edit Queer Out Here with Jonathan. So with Queer Out Here, essentially, we we want to explore the outdoors from a queer perspective is the tagline and it's essentially what it is in a nutshell. So we ask people to send us submissions rather than us talking. It's about people's interpretation of the outdoors from a queer perspective. We keep it very wide, so it can be a field recording, it can be a poem, it can be just someone chatting with a friend about camping trips that they had. It's open to interpretation as as wide as we want. And it, it could be as well about what does it mean to be queer in the outdoors, or it could just be I'm doing this thing in the outdoors and I just happen to be queer. Hi, I'm I'm Jonathan and my pronouns are he, him or they, them. I'm Australian, living in the UK, outside of Queer Out Here, which I co-edit with Alice. I have the very exciting job of managing a database in a school, but other than that, I'm usually creating, crafting, walking, sticking my nose in places. A little bit of light trespassing here and there. 
can relate to sticking my nose into places. I love a good fence hop now and then. So I think both of you alluded to this, but I'm wondering if you can elaborate on what does queerness or being queer mean to you? And then further, what is it to be queer outdoors? Yeah, being queer is, it's something I didn't particularly used to think about growing up. Growing up and moving to different environments sort of realized that being queer can, to, to some extent, being dif- different from the norm. There was a culture and an understanding from people like me, from people who identified as queer, and there was a shared history. And I think for me, a lot of being queer and queerness is about that community where there's a lot of different people from all sorts of backgrounds, but there is something shared there. It's a space where you can just be yourself and you don't have to worry about presenting a certain way or thinking about what you're saying. But at the same time, it can also a place that can be quite isolating. I think for queer and the adult, for me, there's always that duality of safety. It doesn't really matter, but as well of, I don't know, like (laughs) people make a lot of assumption and is it safe to correct them or not? Yeah, I think that's quite interesting, that kind of idea that there's a duality. On the one hand, the trees are not going to misgender you and the river doesn't give a shit who who you're going to go home with. On the other hand, that is an isolated place and all also people's access to that that kind of space is very different depending on who you are and where you are in the world and what your identity is it is your sexuality or your gender identity but it's also um, about being in a network of other queer people and being connected in some way to people who have either similar experiences of identity to you or at least relatable experiences of identity to you yeah i really love that idea of building community also as a way of thinking about the outdoors and environments differently, like how a traditional, maybe scientific way of looking at an environment is that there is dominance and submission and there's predation and all of these like very mechanical dynamics. But I feel like applying my personal lived experience of queerness to the same ecosystem, collections and communities of different species interacting and cohabitating. Do you feel like that's a a queer way of looking at nature? I think so. I Because I connect it back to my experience as a queer person. What other thoughts do you both have about what it is to queer the outdoors or queer environments? Going back to that uh, idea of being places that you're not meant to be, sometimes I, I feel that's quite relatable or mappable onto a queer identity generally. I guess of finding space where space has not been given to you and of finding connections to spaces and places and and people and also animals and the environment and built environments that are not necessarily the ones that you're meant to be having. I think it's not something I necessarily put forward or advertise on social media that I'm queer. It's not some things that I hide, but it's just it's just something that I am but it's not something that define everything that I do I guess being out out there and to claim that space and but also maybe helping to change the definition of the outdoors I think because you see a lot of like when you look at the outdoor traditionally you're going to see in the big landscapes and mountains and all sorts of wild places but I think the outdoors is also like your garden and to some extent you're just even a bit of greenery through the cracks on the pavement and I think that's where maybe also being queer can sometimes shift how you look at things because you've had to shift how you look at things and your experience is is different. I think that really resonates with me as both a queer person and as an outdoors person. I feel like my experience of being queer is not as much to like shout from the rooftops that is my identity but rather as a kind of opportunity to just be a person and a person is an animal and animals respond to each other outside if i walk through a park the birds know that i'm there and i know that the birds are there and we are in relationship and so to me this experience of queerness is so much more about relationality i'm thinking about all of these old train tracks in new york city that are not train tracks anymore they have not had trains on them for decades and now they are like parks because they're full of trees and wild growth and also they are not parks and they are not public but they are still outdoors and they are still ecosystems that are alive and so I feel like a lot of the a lot of the ways I feel my own queerness are present in the experience of a space like that that just isn't quite one thing and isn't quite 
one it, it's not one relationship it's in fact a set of relationships yeah i like the idea of chosen family when applied to to interspecies relationships and Ooh, yeah or spaces even maybe it's slightly like the immigrant feeling as well like both alice and i are not from the uk originally but being able to build your relationship with your surroundings afresh is something that i think also in some ways relates to what can be a, a kind of a typical queer narrative of growing up mm-hmm. leaving getting mm-hmm. to be queer somebody so, somewhere else and building up that network of of people in that instance but also in terms of like your relationship with a particular area like that's an interesting thing to think about just generally if that does map onto people's narratives of their own queerness and, and of moving if they do move and which way they move because that kind of the narrative that a lot of people have is right you grow up in the country like I did and you move to the city like I did and you become more and more queer like I did <laughs> but um <laughs> like what does it mean to, to move back into the country which I have also done over here how did you two first encounter each other and how did you decide to create this project queer out here if you want the long story was that i think both of us were involved with the micro adventure community people could go out and sleep on a hill overnight and then go back to work the next day and have a micro adventure and i think you had tweeted about a micro adventure that you had done and i remember going to that blog post and you had a recording in it i think it was of a church and i was just like i was absolutely captivated because i'd done I'd worked with sound before at university and through music and stuff, but I hadn't ever really thought very much about field recordings. And I just remember sitting, like, reading this little blog post and listening to this field recording and just being like, ah, this is amazing. (laughs) So right from the start, it was with sound. But anyway, that's, I think, that's how we connected. I possibly stalked you for a bit. And I was like, be my friend on Twitter. (laughs) Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. But yeah, I did used to take a microphone quite a lot in micro-adventures. So we made through the outdoors and sound. So it feels like queer out here was like inevitable. But essentially, we started talking about uh, the lack of representations of um, queerness in the outdoor. There there was content out there in that you could find a blog post or you could find a specific podcast interview or there might have been a video or something. But it was always isolated. There was never anything with this is what we do, this is about being queer and this is about the outdoors. So we looked around trying to find something and we couldn't come up with anything. So we thought, well, do something. Since we were both into audio, we just thought we'd do it um, that way. Yeah, in some ways it was quite selfish. We were just like, we want to hear these stories. Okay, let's pay people to send them to us. (laughs) So now that you've been at it for a while, would you say the goal of the podcast is visibility is it archiving are you building an argument what's what do you see as the work of queer out here like we say only half jokingly that we do it because we want to hear the stories and this is the only way to get them we want to hear them because we want to feel like we're part of that network of queers and queerness that that i mentioned before and so the way i think that we go about building our issues reflects the kind of network that we want to be part of. So it's one that makes an effort to be inclusive. It makes an effort to listen to voices and stories that are not like ours. And it's one that appreciates like place as much as people, as much as creativity. So it's we'll have field recordings, we'll have conversations, we'll have sound art and music in it. And it's also a network or, or kind of a connection that encourages experimentation, hopefully. So I guess as we are doing that, we are creating an archive of the present, but we, I guess we're doing it in a way that we're not just an aggregator of content with the keywords gay and hiker or whatever. It's like something, we're trying to build something that's a little richer and messier and more interesting, I think. I, I wanted to ask you actually what you meant by building an argument. Okay. <laughs> I was thinking about this kind of thing that we were talking about earlier about what it means to be queer in the outdoors. The podcast or the zine I think to me like shows that we are queer out here. There are queer people who love who love the the outdoors and that's an argument in itself. I just think about all the different Alice as you were saying like the experimentation. There was a piece in one episode that was like this like making out in a hammock 
Yeah. <laughs> the poem. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. remember that. <laughs> and that like, just blew my mind that this was a way to experience queerness outdoors mm-hmm. in this very like erotic, beautiful way. And so I think another argument that I see coming out of the podcast is that there are so many different ways to be in an environment, to be outdoors. I'm wondering if there are purposeful things that you go in trying to say and trying to show, or is it more like the content comes, people submit things, and you're like, oh. We do sometimes suggest to people that they could use an optional theme because I think sometimes people find it easier to start if they've been given some instructions but the number of people that actually contribute stuff to any theme that we put out is minimal. It's always really quite a fun time once we've closed the submissions and we've got a certain number of submissions and we think about how we're going to curate the journey through them. So, you know, how we're going to move from one to the next and how does this speak in relation to this one? What are the connections? There's always always one piece that we just like, I don't know where to put it. Like often it's like really strong by itself, but we just don't really know how it connects to other things. We have over the last five issues or what have you, the majority of our contributors have been white. So we've always said that we encourage black and indigenous and people of color to contribute, but we have we think that we haven't been active enough. And obviously we haven't been because our content has just 80 to 90% of people have been white who've contributed. So this time around we've done, we've had a two month window where only BIPOC people can submit and we've spent our two months asking for suggestions going out and finding other content contacting people and asking if they'd be happy to contribute or for us to use excerpts of their work which is something that we will continue to do going forward if we don't get more BIPOC contributions because it's pretty shitty really to have a a mostly (laughs) white audio zine about queerness because all we're doing is talking about white queers whereas there are a hell of a lot of other people out there with different and interesting stories and different perspectives that we should be highlighting as well we we spent a bunch of time talking about this in the first episode of polyculture this whitening of the idea of nature and of culture and of wilderness and obviously the environmental movement especially in the u.s was so incredibly white and and based in values brought about by white supremacy culture and it it doesn't surprise me that this trend is happening in the submissions and i think speaks to the world we live in which like white people have been claiming the outdoors and also destroying the outdoors for centuries and naturally there is a legacy to contend with there. Yeah, it's something that obviously we haven't got right yet and we're going to continue working on. We were hoping that we're putting in the work to actually make sure that we've got more contributions and more voices that are from people of colour. So hopefully once we've demonstrated that we're hoping that maybe more other people will feel more comfortable contributing as well because i think there's also potentially that that barrier where you know like if if i see a call out for things <clears throat> for creative pieces about the outdoors and it doesn't specify that it's for queer people then i might not submit to that so i'm guessing if i can't yeah. look back through their archives and see that there have been queer people represented before then why would I feel like that's a safe space for me to put my ideas out there and I guess it's probably similar for us as well to if unless people can look and see that that those voices and those people and those creators have contributed before and to be able to see how we've respected hopefully <laughs> the, the work that they've sent in then why would they trust us yeah every time With every new issue, we talk about it and we think we haven't done very well, but equally we haven't searched very well, but it's definitely our job to make sure that we welcome it in. Yeah, earlier when I was saying that we're trying to build the kind of network that we want to be part of, that's that's part of how we're doing it, as well as we pay contributors because we think people should be valued for what they create, even though it's not very much. And yeah, I think it would be very easy to create a, a zine or a podcast like Queer Out Here and be or try to be quite apolitical about it. But I don't think that's what we are. Like, I think even though 
we don't editorialise very much. We're not necessarily building a political argument, big P political argument. I think that our politics do underpin what we do. And hopefully, as our politics get better and we are better aligned with it, we'll end up with a, a better audio zine at the end of it. I love the voice you just used to signify this sort of what reads to me as as a very fake openness and accessibility. Being apolitical is like not being racist. Like that's not being anti-racist and you're not actually being apolitical. You're just ignoring the thing at hand. So I I think there's a lot to be said for moving at the speed of trust, which you both alluded to. Like, why would BIPOC creators trust this outlet if folks don't see similar, other people who have similar identities participating in this community? But yes, the the work of building the network we want to be a part of is such needed work. And I think there's so much room to build community across like decades and centuries old rifts in a place in the outdoors and talking about the outdoors and talking about queerness, which are places and identities that reject extractive frameworks and racist frameworks that have driven the segregation that's so inherent in culture, I think. Yeah, I think I, uh, this is one of the reasons why I love Queer Out Here is that you two are so embodied in your values, just with the paying people thing. The fact that you're like, we don't have funders, but we're going to pay people for our work because that's what matters. And with being two white folks making a podcast, it's so easy for organizations, especially I think in environmentalism, which has been so white, to just say, oh, we don't have non-white contributors. We tried, but it's fine. Like, I know we've all probably worked with organizations who have said, well, we tried. We did our best. So for you to be like, if this continues to be a majority white venture it fails as a project like to make that strong of a statement and commitment and to do the work that it takes um, to build that trust is i think a model that more organizers and organizations should be following thanks yes yes people should be doing that like it, it doesn't necessarily deserve cookies it just should be how it is that's one thing that at the end of every issue we sit down and we have our debrief and one of the questions we always ask ourselves is do we want to make another issue and this time at the end of issue five when we looked at it and we're like we're, we're consistently failing to represent more people who are not like us really we were just like we are not going to put out another issue that is not representative so if we don't get the pieces then we've got to look for the pieces and if people don't want to um, have those pieces in our publication then we won't put out another one like that's just as simple as it is which is unfortunate obviously I, we think that it's important to have queer people talking about the outdoors but if it's only queer white people there's already five issues of that so people can listen to that i really like how clearly your process is aligned with both the experience of being a queer person and the experience of being outdoors. It seems like you start doing something, it's not immediately obvious what the end product is, it's not immediately obvious which path you take. Sometimes you go out looking for snow buntings and you see a red-tailed hawk instead and it's still really nice that you saw a red-tailed hawk and that's what I'm hearing in your process, which, which makes me want to hear a little bit more about how the work of producing queer out here has shaped how you move through both outdoor and queer spaces and communities i think for me it's it's having different voices that i get to hear and being challenged in in some of my thinking and having grown up in a, a white catholic very traditional country a lot of my upbringing was not presenting me with anything different than than the norm and different than you know what i was seeing in everyday life a lot of it was just hidden from sight because i wasn't navigating in any different spheres it makes me think a little bit in in what Jonathan was was saying earlier about, you know, the trajectory of being queer, being raised in the countryside, moving to the city. And for me, definitely this idea of I moved to the city and I got disconnected with the adults there and found it back afterwards. Queer out here is, in a sense, helping me keep challenging myself and keep thinking in different ways and how 
I approach the outdoors and how I approach queerness. I think over time, my definition of queerness has definitely widened. I would say that bringing it back to a much more kind of personal level, I think being being part of Queer Out Here and part of a more audio-based community has really changed the way that I move through the outdoors because I listen a lot more. I get a lot more joy out of all kinds of different sounds and all kinds of changes in sounds that I didn't necessarily notice before, which is an interesting kind of parallel in some ways to like hearing about identities and people that you, you know, weren't aware of before. I spend a lot more time listening to beautiful natural sounds, sure, the stream trickling, but also the gutter trickling and also the downpipe trickling and also the weird sound of the the fence railing that like bangs against the other thing. And I think that also makes me slow down a little bit. And I think that's much more sensual engagement with the outdoors is also, I don't want to say it's necessarily a queering of the outdoors, but I think that there is a way of engaging with and and being part of an, an outdoors space that is again not necessarily the way that you're taught to be in an outdoor space that you're not necessarily taught to linger at a gutter and listen to it listen to a drain or whatever it is but it is something that i spend a lot more time doing now i love that the more you listen the more you hear Going back to your search for broadening the demographics of Queer Out Here, like the more you search, the more you find. I think that's a good place to leave it. This has been really lovely. You two are so amazing. I feel like I could talk to y'all for hours. (laughs) Yeah, it's been really great talking to you as well. And I'm really looking forward to listening to more episodes of Polyculture as it comes out. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's been a lovely time. Yeah. Thanks for getting all intelligent on us. (laughs) (laughs) anytime so Gabe here we are again after both of those lovely interviews with all those lovely people and we want to bring up a thread that came up throughout both conversations which is that of the personal experience of being queer and how that relates to queering things queering ecology queering sound all these things the bit that jumped out at me that all three of the people we interviewed talked about and that we've talked about a lot amongst the two of us is this idea that each of our own experiences of being queer is the thing that equips us to queer the verb, other things. And I don't really think anybody's straight, which is probably a different conversation. But I do not think that straight people can be queering stuff because this experience of queerness and of queering yourself, I think, is the practice. That's the way you learn to queer other things. And from what Jonathan was talking about to listening to the drain pipe to what Alice was talking about and reclaiming certain ideas of the outdoors and to what Lee was talking about and being able to see the inherent queerness of Pete. All of these are ways in which those folks' individual experiences as being queer people and queering themselves was almost like the ideological precursor to queering other stuff outside of their own selves. To appropriate a RuPaul-ism, if you can't queer yourself, how the hell are you going to queer something else? The superpower that we have as queer people is that we see ourselves as outside of binaries and stuck between things. I think there's something different between understanding this in-betweenness theoretically, which you can do hopefully by listening to these interviews and, and reading about queer ecology and like feeling it in your body and feeling yourself caught between things. In addition to the betweenness, there's another piece, which is being of many. I remember when I came out to my mom and I told her that I was using they, them pronouns She said something about how, at least in English, and obviously this is different in in every language, we use what was formerly thought of in the mainstream as a plural pronoun to refer to one person. And my mom said something about how, you know, now I, I had a superpower, which is that I could be more than one person at once, which is how it feels to be a queer person, a trans person, someone who, you know, not only is in between things, but of many things at the same time. Mm -hmm. And every day when I wake up, I feel different and it's not like I feel more and less like one of the binary genders. It's I feel a whole 
different combination of things that make up what it is to be human. Yes, yes. Very sense eight. Very sense eight. To be discussed in a future episode. Queerness coming from personal experience also makes the like discipline of queer theory an anti-discipline because as you heard in these interviews, there are moments where our personal experiences don't come into conflict with each other, but like my personal experience will move into a different place than yours or Lee's or Jonathan's or Alice's. And those like contradictions and resonances open up new avenues for seeing things and for tying things together. And I think to that point, the discipline of queerness and queering is born of that constellation of knowledge that comes from a lot of different queer people having a lot of different experiences of being queer. What is traditionally thought of as a discipline is a pretty rigidly outlined area of study and it is one thing and you have to fit into the thing in order to be a practitioner of that discipline whereas the only qualification I think you need to be a a practitioner of the anti-discipline of queer study and queering is to queer yourself. Yeah like we're attempting to come at this from a sort of academic standpoint and yes we read some texts before we went into this What our primary sources we're relying on are our own stories and the stories of other queer people that we know, which is not something that everyone is about, but we're queer, we're here. (laughs) So. And and I think, I think trust of our own truths, even as those truths diverge, kind of challenges this idea that information is only valued or deemed true if it can be validated by peers through peer review. Mm-hmm. And that all of all of us queer folks are constantly validating and affirming each other's queerness through our mm-hmm. shared experience of queerness and also recognizing that each person's queerness is independent and unique. But like, how, do, how would you peer review a study of queerness when it inherently relies upon this sort of divergence and difference at its core. There's no one single truth. Just to go back to the idea of queerness as metaphor for ecology and vice versa, queerness and ecology serve to break down categories. And we know that categorization specifically of identity has been weaponized in a huge chunk of human history. And that in fact, it's this idea of objectivity and the idea of, you know, categorizing people by race and by gender to borders and, and geographic identities. All of those are based in this idea that there can be an objective kind of truth and an objective kind of identity, which is in itself rooted in white supremacy culture. And I also think there's this categorization of spaces as mm-hmm. nature, as cultural spaces, as urban, rural, wild civilized and personal experience shows us that everyone who moves through a space who occupies the space has a different experience of it and they bring their personal experience of all the other spaces they've been into to that space they're moving through and that's like another way where queerness bleeds into environmental thought i wonder if we could go so far as to say that there is such an overlap between queer thought and ecological thought and theory that not only are they metaphors for each other, but they can also kind of stand in for each other. And that actually queerness is ecology is queerness is ecology. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Polyculture Podcast. Next time we will be talking about monocultures. Yes, we're going to do two episodes on agriculture, one on monoculture, and then the next one on permaculture. I thought you were going to say polyculture. No, that's in the title. It's too confusing. Oh, okay. This episode of the Polyculture Podcast was created and edited by Lena Greenberg and Gabriel Coleman. A very special thank you to our guests, Lee Brown, Alice Riordan, and Jonathan Williams. You can find out more about all of our guests and the sources we pulled from in the episode description. Our theme is by Gabriel Coleman, and our musical interlude this episode was Ginkgo by Jonathan Williams. If you have a song or a sound piece you'd like to share, shoot us an email or send us a tweet because we would love to feature it. We're especially looking to feature BIPOC and queer creators. Thank you so much once again for listening, and you'll hear from us again soon.